0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is why zero-sum economic thinking is wrong. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics Podcast, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn how to think about policy, or who need to understand or get up to speed on a particular issue. Sometimes we do these IPI Policy Basics podcasts on specific subject matter, but sometimes we do them on concepts. And today we want to talk about the concept of zero-sum economic thinking and why it's generally wrong. And I'm joined today by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews.
1: And Tom, you know, I I remember when this really started becoming an issue, because I was a PhD student at the University of Texas at Dallas, and L- Dr. Lester Thoreau, who was an economist, uh, had written the book The Zero Sum Economy, mm. and it was it had become very popular. And it was sort of this notion of the that you have winners and losers in an economy. And I went and listened to one of his lectures, but it it was a it was a notion that was wrong then, and it was wrong now. So let's start off by telling people what a zero-sum economy or zero-sum thinking sure, is. Sure,
0: absolutely. In fact, in fact, to your point, I get emails to this day from an organization called the Zero Sum Economy, hmm. and their whole agenda. And I mean, they're they're left leaning and they're pretty environmentally radical, as was Lester Thoreau. Yeah, well, yeah. And their whole point is that if we're going to preserve the planet, essentially you can't grow the economy, right? because mm-hmm. there's this assumption that it harms things. So let's talk about this idea of zero sum thinking. And I'm going to start with what I think is a very simple and understandable illustration, okay? This may seem a little juvenile, but let's let's <laughs> let's start simple before we get complicated. So, imagine that there are five people sitting around a, a dinner table and there's a delicious bourbon pecan pie sitting in the middle of the table and it's sliced into five slices. So there's one slice for each person, five people, five slices. Now, if we were talking about this in economic terms, we would say this is a closed system with no external inputs, okay? It's a fixed pie. It has a certain number of slices. So each person can get one slice of pie and everything's fine. That's zero sum. But if I want two slices of pie or if I want three slices of pie, or if indeed I get to the table first and eat three slices before anybody else gets there, my gain is someone else's loss. For me to have three slices of pie, two other people have to miss out because the game is zero sum. It's a fixed size of a pie with fixed slices. So my gain is another person's loss, and that is essentially the the core concept of zero-sum thinking. In zero-sum thinking, one person's game is another person's loss.
1: Now, in a market economy, we think it's just the opposite, that, in fact, two people coming together can have a win-win situation right. and not necessarily a win-lose. And so I'll give you my example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, had, My wife had a chair she wanted to sell, so she had advertised it on the local bulletin board free, so it didn't cost anything. We weren't asking a lot of money. She didn't get any uh takers on it. She got a lot of looks, but no takers. She lowered the price. She lowered the price again. She Mm -hmm. lowered the price Mm -hmm. again. And finally, someone was interested in this. Mm -hmm. And that person came over a few days ago, and she liked the chair, and we sold it for not very much money. But we won because we wanted to get the chair out of the garage. Mm -hmm. We got some money, less than we wanted, but -hmm. we still got some money. And the other lady who was buying this chair had just recently been divorced she had a house she had to fill with some furniture. So she got a very good price for a very decent chair that we had been using just a few months ago. Right. And so I would argue we may not have gotten exactly what we wanted, but it was a win-win, both of us, because it was a voluntary agreement where both of us could have said no if we wanted to walk away. But we both said, I, I prefer your little bit of money over my chair, and you prefer your my chair over your little bit of money. Right. We made the exchange. And we would say that's a win-win. There was no loser
0: in that deal, right? If you actually look up zero-sum thinking on the internet, uh, you don't find a ton of articles about like economics. You mm-hmm. find a lot of articles about psychology, mm-hmm. and the argument is that this idea of zero-sum thinking—the idea that for me to have something, I have to take it away from you—really comes from sort of you know what you might call the, our lizard brain, right? It's it's very very elemental, low-level thinking there's an assumption that there's not enough food, there's not enough water, there's not enough stuff. And so for me to have it, I have to take it away from you. And what you just described, this idea that both parties can benefit from a transaction or from economic activity is actually sort of a higher level kind of thinking. It's higher Mm -hmm. level function. It's more intelligent than sort of just relying on our lizard brain to just assume for me to have, I have to take away from you or you have to not have.
1: There may be another part too here because our culture is so sports oriented and in almost every kind of sport, you have a winner and either one or several losers. Right. So or they may get second or third place, but you, essentially you have a winner and a loser. Yeah. And I think we've taken that mentality over to a lot of things including the world of business, where somebody in business may say, if if I w- want to win, somebody else has got to lose. Or if our economy is winning, another economy is losing. Or if this other economy over here is winning, we must be losing. And that's just not how you think in a market economy.
0: No, you're right. But you, but you make a good point. Let's spend a couple minutes on this. Some things are zero-sum, mm-hmm. right? Politics is zero-sum, right? If, if I win the election, you you, you lose the election. Yes. Right? Right. Um, Romance is zero sum, right? I mean, if a woman has four suitors, right, only one of them gets to marry her, right? So one wins and and three miss out. So I mean, there are things in life that are zero sum, um, and there and, and even in the economy.
1: Yep. If another person and I are bidding on some something we're wanting to right, buy, right. and that person bids more that person wins and i lose.
0: I bought something on eBay just last night and there were like 23 or 24 bidders and i i won, everybody mm-hmm. else lost. So, yes, there are some things that are zero sum. In fact, you might argue, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be like thinking out loud on a podcast, but you might argue that like the state of nature is zero sum, right? And that the the amazing miraculous invention, the miracle is the creation of markets and capitalism and the idea of a system where in fact everyone can benefit that that's that's the innovation it's almost and, like the natural state is zero sum but the real innovation the real innovation of modernity is the fact that we actually have a system where you can grow the pie and everyone can benefit
1: and that's a system in which people enter voluntarily mm-hmm. And they decide what's in their own best interest. And if they feel like this is better, this solution is better than not doing it. I agree. You agree. And so we voluntarily agreed to something. There's no force. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, we both walk away feeling like we were better off than we were before. And that's where the win-win comes in.
0: So I want to go back to my delicious bourbon pecan pie example. And I described that as a closed system. But the the real question is, what if you could have more pie? What if you could make another pie? What if you could grow the pie? Then everyone could have more. Everyone could have a larger slice. And so that's the difference when we talk about economics between assuming that you have a closed system and assuming that you have an open system. And the fact of the matter is, is the real world is an open system. We have almost endless capacity for human innovation and creativity and technological innovation, and things like that. So there's always new inputs coming into the economy. So the point is, we don't have a static pie. We don't have a pie that has a fixed size. You can actually grow the pie. And so everyone can have a bigger slice of the pie. Now, you might start off with a bigger slice of the pie than I have. But if the whole pie is getting bigger, both of our slices get bigger.
1: Well, you introduced a term we haven't used. Which is growth. Right. And you're talking about growing the pie. Right. But if one of our key aspects is, and we pound on this all the time, if you grow the economy, then everyone can do better. That's and by right. everyone that's a that's It doesn't mean there'll be some people who fail. These are are generalities,
0: obviously. But yes. In
1: generally speaking, then everyone can do better because you've got a bigger pie to grow. And that's why I would argue the United States is so wealthy and does so well. Even our low income people do better than an awful lot of middle or upper middle income people in other countries is because our pie is so big.
0: Right. So I want to talk a little bit um, philosophically about this, and then we can get to some of the current issues, like the focus on inequality and things like that. But I mean, philosophically, uh, just because this is the part of this topic that interests me so much, this is the genius of markets and capitalism. I mean, this is the real innovation. Jonah Goldberg wrote a book a couple of years ago um, called The Suicide of the West, and mm-hmm. he, he describes what he calls the miracle, and the miracle is this whole idea of market capitalism and it's what has allowed the the human race essentially to dramatically increase standards of living personal income health and wealth education and everything was this development of markets it's the, the this whole idea of a market economy itself is an innovation and i like to talk about this in sort of hyperbolic terms and i'll grant that it's hyperbole but you know if you go back to like a tribal situation or a pre-market situation you know, how do you gain? You gain by attacking someone else and taking away from them. You gain by robbing and pillaging. You gain from conquering another country. You you, you send your armies into, you know, you're the Vikings. How do the Vikings gain? They gain from pillaging, you know, England and from pillaging Europe. Uh, but when you have this remarkable miracle, this invention of a market economy, suddenly you have the situation where By serving you, I actually benefit myself. By growing more crops than I need for my family, I can sell crops to you. By making more shoes than I need for my family, I can sell the excess production and I can make more money. Uh, By serving other people, by doing more than is absolutely necessary, I can actually benefit myself and I can benefit you at the same time. And that's the opposite of zero-sum thinking, right? The idea that You enter into a transaction, and each side of the transaction gets what they want. If I go to the grocery store and buy a pint of strawberries, I'm getting what I want. I'm getting a pint of strawberries, but the grocery store is getting what they want, too.
1: And one of the reasons why uh, free market economists have often said that one of the best avenues towards peace, global peace, Mm -hmm. is the notion of having a market economy. If we are buying something from another country and they're buying our products Mm -hmm. and we're working and we're compromising and we're talking back and forth and communicating, that actually discourages uh, certain countries from trying to come in and take over because you're both able to grow. Now, there are countries that don't that don't right. abide by that. Right. But in general, if you have countries that are willing to engage in trade and and uh, work with each other and compromise on those things, mm-hmm. actually avoid war and takeover more than other countries that don't.
0: Again, we're dealing in generalities, because as a general rule, countries that trade together don't go to war. Right. You know? Um, and this is why... You know, when we have, for instance, um, President Trump talking about the America First agenda, I mean, we all, you know, we all, we're Americans, so we like the idea that, you know, Americans should come first and all of that, but there really is a sense in which one of the geniuses of globalization, as demonized as it is today, one of the geniuses of globalization is that as countries are interdependent with each other, that economic cooperation Results in other kinds of cooperation. If I have an if if I have an economic interest in you being happy and healthy and well off and you have an economic interest in me being happy and healthy and well off, we're probably not going to get in a fight. And,
1: you know, Trump never actually saw trade. He always saw trade as a zero sum game. Absolutely. If the Chinese were selling us more than we were uh, selling to the Chinese, the Chinese were winning. We were losing. Right. And and that's just where it's, it's just fundamentally wrong. Yeah, Uh. because in the economy, I buy lots of things from people or companies that never buy anything from me. Right. Exactly. And I feel like I'm winning that lady who bought the chair is probably never going to come back and buy anything from us again. And right. I will probably never I don't know where she is. I right. never go buy anything. from. But we both made a deal and she feels better off from it. It wasn't that I won and she lost. Right. We both won in that trade.
0: That's exactly right. I want to go back to my pint of strawberries illustration. Let's just say that a pint of strawberries is $2, right? Well, if I'm giving two of my dollars to the grocery store for a pint of strawberries and I'm getting $2 worth of strawberries back in exchange, that's an equal exchange of value, right? We both got what we wanted. Nobody got ripped off nobody took from anybody else that's an equal exchange of value and we're both better off as a consequence of that so this idea somehow that <laughs> boy i got some strawberries from the grocer i really got him i really you know i really took advantage of him that's not what happens in a market economy because no one's compelled to participate the grocer doesn't have to sell strawberries to me at the price i demand right I don't get to dictate the price. So as long as it's voluntary, as long as there's no compulsion, both sides are better off. Now, you mentioned President Trump. For all the good that President Trump did, the tax reform and all this kind of stuff, I don't know that we've ever had a better example of a zero-sum thinker in national politics than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really did believe that if if another country was doing well, they must be doing it at our expense. Right, And that's why we had all this chatter about China ripping us off, but not just China, Mexico and Canada. You know, we didn't just put tariffs on China. We put tariffs on everybody. we put tariffs on China, on, on our, on Mexico, things coming from Mexico. We put tariffs on things coming from Canada. And it was all a result of this sort of zero sum thinking.
1: And, you know, interestingly, there were countries that had a trade deficit with us. That is we, mm-hmm. they bought more from us than right. we buy from them. Right. And I never heard the president say, we're winning in those countries. Right. And nobody sort of thinks we're winning there. Right. Uh, it was just this issue of the trade deficit. Mm-hmm. And economists, uh, there have been, I've, I've read several economists that this is the worst, the notion of a trade deficit that sounds like a balance sheet is one of the worst right. economic concepts anybody's ever come up with. Because if I give something that for something, and I, I'm willing to make that trade, there is no mm. deficit
0: there. That's right. You know, we, we at IPI have written about this many times, that trade deficits literally don't matter. Because if we're giving a billion dollars worth of value to Canada, and Canada's giving a billion dollars worth of value to us, that's an even exchange. And it doesn't matter whether it's goods going one direction and currency going the other direction. It's an even exchange. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons why I thought it was really important for us to, to talk about this zero-sum fallacy is that how persistent it is in political discussions and economic discussions and things like that. And it, it gives – it's sort of an insult to the genius of free markets to think in terms of zero-sum. It, it is an insult to the genius of markets that, again – that I can benefit myself and you can benefit yourself by the two of us entering into voluntary economic transactions and you get what you want and you're happy and I get what I get want and I'm happy. We're both benefiting. We're both serving each other in a sense. We both won. We both won. We both won. Uh, One of us did not have to lose for the other one to win. So I think there's a couple of, I think there's at least three, I think, specific applications that we ought to talk about here. And we've already talked about one of them, to some degree, which is trade. Mm-hmm. But to to back up a step, this is why we focus so much on at IPI on economic growth. This is why economic growth matters. This is why when you talk about you know in the past year the economy grew at four percent, or in the past year the economy only grew at one percent, because if the economy is growing, as a general rule, everyone's slice of the pie is getting a little bit bigger. Now. Is there going to be somebody who has a bigger slice of pie than you do? Yes. Is there going to be somebody who has a smaller slice of pie than you do? Yes. But instead of comparing ourselves to each other, it really makes more sense to compare ourselves to our prior selves. Am I better off now than I was two years ago or five years ago? Am I headed in the right direction? Rather than, am I better off or worse off than Jeff Bezos, right? Because there's a real sense in which how Jeff Bezos is doing has literally no impact at all on how I'm doing. because The world is not zero-sum. For Jeff Bezos to be a multi-billionaire did not require him to take away from me. In fact, Jeff Bezos became a multi-billionaire by serving me, by creating an amazing product that I love, Amazon. That provides incredible services and conveniences to me and to my family.
1: And yet we have in Washington now a group of people, and they're the ones who are running, right? Washington and uh, the budget committees and so forth, who think that if a if somebody has done well financially, even uh, even if you're talking about a company like Amazon, it must be that person is winning and the rest of us are losing.
0: And so the the core error there is zero-sum thinking, right? The core error here is the fact that Amazon is so wildly successful must come by abusing someone somewhere, right? And Somebody must be losing. Somebody must be losing. And in fact, when you look at the history of these, I mean, just talking about tech, for instance, Microsoft became wildly successful, not by taking advantage of people, not by taking away from people, but by delivering a product of incredible value. And before Microsoft, IBM did the same thing. They grew and became big and powerful by delivering a product of incredible value. Walmart, the same way. Walmart delivers a product of incredible value to American consumers, and they win and their consumers win. And Amazon, the same thing. Amazon has grown, their shareholders have profited, Jeff Bezos has profited, their employees have profited, not by taking advantage of people, not by taking from people, but by providing an incredible beneficial service and convenience. And so that's what we mean by you can grow the pie, you can make the pie bigger, you can make the economy bigger through this almost endless human capacity for innovation, and new ideas and invention, new businesses, new business models, and new technology. So don't fall into this error in domestic policy and antitrust stuff and resenting rich people and big companies. Don't fall into this error of zero-sum thinking. Now, the other way that we talked about this was in this international trade. And so, you know, we just need to touch it again, I think. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that It doesn't hurt the United States to engage in trade with other countries, because just as it doesn't hurt you and I personally to engage in trade with each other, it doesn't hurt the United States and Canada to engage in trade, or it doesn't hurt the United States and, dare I say it, China to engage in trade. Now, where I think the president was correct when he talks about China ripping us off was in the areas where they are literally ripping us off, like espionage and cybersecurity and stealing American patents and stealing American technology, yes, that is China ripping us off. But China selling goods to Americans for the prices Americans want to pay is not China ripping us off. That's an even exchange of value. So I think international trade is an important area for this too. And then the third area, I think, in in current debate where this becomes a problem is the focus on inequality. You know, during the Reagan years, we used to talk about how a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And so today there is so much focus on inequality, the fact that some people have more and other people have less. But in a free market economy where everyone's slice of the pie can grow because the system is open, because there's no limits on, there's no natural limits on growth. You can grow the pie and everyone can benefit. Surely that is better than this goal of equality. Because when, if you focus on income inequality, if you, if you focus on the difference between the slices of the pie, the solutions to that always involve limiting the free market economy, the thing that created the wealth in the first place. So when you have sort of essentially socialist prescriptions for inequality, it's inevitable that those socialist prescriptions from inequality will have the impact of slowing economic growth or even reversing economic growth. And so would you rather everyone be relatively well-off but have a high degree of inequality, or would you rather everyone be equally poor and miserable? Because that is what socialist economies deliver according to history.
1: And with respect to inequality, one of the reasons why the trade issue was important is because if a company like Walmart can find a product made in another country cheaper than it's made in the U S and in many cases, it was a product that wasn't even made in the
0: U S anymore. Right, exactly.
1: But they're able to find this and they're competing among several, they're finding several countries and it's made cheaper in this country as opposed to that country. And they bring it in mm-hmm. in terms of inequality. That makes lower-income people's dollars stretch further. Right. Walmart has done more to help uh, low-income people be able to pay their bills and get what they need than many other things out there mm-hmm. that the left wants to promote. Right. Simply by making the prices cheaper
0: and available to people. Yeah, markets have a much better track record than governments as far as uh, as far as lifting all boats mm-hmm. and and bettering people. All right, let's wrap up with a couple of um, a couple of observations. We talk about markets, but we like to phrase free markets. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason we say free is this issue of markets are always beneficial to both sides of the transaction so long as there's no compulsion. Right. Right? In a free market, it's the negotiations and it's the private agreements between you and I that determine what is the price someone's willing to pay for something, right?
1: Two, two or more – entities enter into a contract voluntarily that's right and the contract is there to be a, that's that may be a role for government to enforce the contract mm-hmm. but other than that it's to two, two right. or more entities entering into an agreement
0: exactly so as long as there's no compulsion and as long as it's voluntary it's a free market and I, the reason this is an important thing to mention is when we get into things like government price controls mm-hmm. when we get into government enacting policies, that affect prices, whether they're price supports or whether they're price limits or price controls, you really no longer have a free voluntary market anymore. I mean, you might have a market, but it's not a free market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the real genius of markets is, as you say, that they are voluntary and free of compulsion. So uh, that's why it's, the word free is important in that phrase, free markets. Uh, the second thing I think to observe is while there are things in life that are zero-sum, as we described— Economics is not. And so it's a it's a real logical fallacy to apply zero-sum thinking to economics. You can grow the pie. Everyone can have more. Everyone can improve themselves. All parties to a transaction can benefit from the transaction, so long as there's not a gun pointed at your head, and so long as there's no compulsion. And I think the final observation I'd like to make is uh, – For those of us in the conservative world, the center-right world, the free market world, however you identify yourself, I think it's very important for us to not let Donald Trump's zero-sum thinking Mm -hmm. become part of our approach toward policy. Uh, For as many things as President Trump got right, uh, he was very, very wrong in this idea of zero-sum thinking. And so we don't want to start ad- adopting this idea somehow that for America to be first, everyone else has to be harmed mm. or everyone else has to be lessened. The, the Ronald Reagan School of American Leadership is that America is the shining city on the hill, providing a good example to everyone else and it, 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 uh, encouraging other countries to liberalize their policy, to have more economic freedom, to have more personal freedom, that we provide a good example and we provide good incentives, not that we think for us to succeed, everybody else has to fail. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this IPI Policy Basics podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something, and we hope you agree. You can find out a lot more about economic growth and trade and markets at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review? On iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. That would really help us. It would help us rise in the rankings and help more people become aware of our podcast. It would also help us if you became a member of IPI's New Giving Society, and you can find out more about that at our website at ipi.org as well. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.